I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Explorers. For the past few months, we've been out all over the country recording shows for this season. But right now, in January 2022, travel is looking a lot different than it did even two, three months ago. I took a couple trips over the holidays. I dealt with a lot of uncertainty. Flight delays and cancellations. COVID anxiety while sharing an Airbnb with friends. Maybe even a little bit of guilt that I was even taking a vacation in the first place. And I know I'm not totally alone here. In this episode, we're going to have some conversations with an ER doctor who also runs a travel company making international trips right now, with a bioethicist who ponders the question of what quote-unquote safe travel even is, and with Scott Kyes, author of Take More Vacations and founder of Scott's Cheap Flights, about how to navigate the increasingly complicated world of airline travel. We cannot advise you to either travel or not travel right now. We can't give you public health advice. But I found these conversations helped me, at least, get a handle on the situation. And in the name of service, we thought they might help you too. So first up, Mr. Scott Kyes, who has been on the show a few times before. He's going to break down why we've seen a tidal wave of airline issues in the past month or so and what anyone flying in the immediate future should definitely know. What's happening is basically since about Christmas Eve, there has been a perfect storm of three different factors. First, you have the busiest travel time of the year. Second, you have airlines coming into the holiday season already really stretched thin on employees. And then layer on top of that, the third major factor that I think is really kind of causing all these factors to boil over, and that's the Omicron variant, this super transmissible variant that's causing Thankfully, likely more mild symptoms, but in large part still causing, you know, thousands, millions of people to have to call in sick. It's not terribly shocking that the end result is a lot of canceled flights. A few days before my flight back home, I started checking my flight, seeing if I could somehow, you know, prognosticate some type of delay, see something (laughs) coming. One thing that you can do is you can actually track the plane that you're scheduled to fly on. So there are websites like Flight Radar 24 or Flight Aware where you put in your flight number and they'll usually have a button that says, where is my plane now? You know, when, when I'm worried about it, if there's bad weather, if it's a tight connection, I like to track the inbound plane. The next thing though that you want to do as a consumer is make sure you come with a backup plan. Look, when there are thousands of cancellations, you have gate agents, you have flight agents, phone agents who are dealing with so many people. They don't have the time or the inclination to spend a ton of time helping you get your ideal flight. And your best strategy is to come in and research what if my flight gets canceled, which flight would I prefer to be on next? And looking at it not only on the on the airline you're scheduled on, but also on some alternative airlines. But many of the major airlines have these so-called interline agreements where when there are a bunch of cancellations or delays, they agree, hey, American, we can put some of your people on this United flight if there are empty seats. 
The agent might not necessarily say, hey, what about this United flight? Do you like it? But if you ask for it specifically, you're much more likely to be able to get it. One other tip that I'll have for folks, if you need to get through to an agent, rather than just sitting on hold for all those hours, try to look up the airline's foreign offices. So Delta has an office in Canada. You know, American Airlines has an office in London. Nobody else is calling these foreign offices. They're all calling the main U.S. hotline. And so that's why there's a five-hour wait there. But if you call the Canada office, you call the U.K. office, very few people are calling and you're going to get through in a couple minutes. Look, if it's going to cost me $2 to call the Canadian office for my airline and that's going to save me a three or four hour hold time, man, that's the best $2 I spent that day. Believe you me. Also a good chance to, uh, you know, brush up on your Duolingo skills to put them... <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I'll call the Paris office. I've been studying French for three days. Why not? There you go. I haven't done this personally. I have like mixed feelings about the ethics of it, but I know one tactic similarly that uh, that some folks do is they, uh, you know, will call up the main airline office and rather than hitting one for English, they'll hit two for Spanish. Uh, they might not speak a word of Spanish, but almost all the agents who you're going to get connected to are bilingual. And once they're clear, like, this is not going to happen in Spanish, the conversation will probably naturally switch to English. Wow, that is uh, kind of sneaky. <laughs> I don't know if I love that or I hate it. If you are at the airport and you do find yourself either canceled or severely delayed, is it better to bum rush the kiosk like everyone else or make a call or try to do both to multitask somehow? Airports are this hilariously lawless space and it is absolutely a first come first serve environment. If you are the first one to get to that gate agent, you are going to be the first one helping. You're going to be the have the first pick on that new seat. I've definitely, in instances where I was worried about getting uh, my flight canceled or where I thought, hey, there's an oversell. I want to get bumped. I want to get, you know, six, seven, eight hundred dollars for my seat. I'll grab a seat as close as possible to that gate agent. But you raise a good point. The gate agent is not the only one who can help you. Phone agents can help you as well. Airline agents actually have a fair amount of autonomy. They have a fair amount of ability to make things happen for you if they want to. And I think you're much more likely to convince them to want to do that if you are that one person in their day who's really pleasant. I honestly have been, this is pre-pandemic and everything's a lot more complicated now, but I have been in situations where flights have been really delayed and I would miss the thing that I was booked to go to. And I had no luck with one agent over the phone and I just called right back and kind of changed my tactic. And it totally worked. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because even just from a large perspective, remembering that airline agents have a lot of autonomy, they have a lot of discretion about whether to give you what you want. And so the general approach that I'll take is if there's something that I want, I'll call up once, I'll ask for it. If I'm told no, I don't just assume, oh, well, you know, that's the law, that's the policy, no, no go. Okay, thank you, appreciate your time. Hang up call again. Because when I call back, I'm getting patched through to a different agent. And if they say no, I'll, I'll thank you, appreciate your time, hang up, call a third time. And if only if I'm told no three times do I start to feel like, all right, this is probably hard-coded, this is probably something I can't actually get. Let's descend further into a deeper level of airport airline hell. Your flight is canceled, it's delayed. There is nothing you can do about it. Um, I have been in these situations before and I was lucky enough to 
get a hotel voucher. I got to see lovely Richmond, Virginia in the middle of winter. It was great. But from my understanding, that is not necessarily required by law. That's exactly right. It's not required by law. I wish it were. I think it ought to be, especially in a situation where you're stranded. What do they expect? You know, I expect my 76-year-old mother to sleep on the ground in the airport. Like, come on. And airlines are almost never going to give, I shouldn't say almost never, rarely going to give vouchers when it is a weather-related disruption. They are significantly more likely when it's something that's within their power to control, like, you know, a mechanical issue with the plane. But actually, the biggest thing that you can do as a consumer is go look up the credit card that you use to pay for that flight with and Google what their travel protections are. Because many credit cards automatically include protections for you, including reimbursing you for a hotel when you're stranded, reimbursing you for the cab over to the hotel, meals, etc. But in those types of situations, when you're stranded in Richmond, Virginia, it's the middle of winter and you don't want to sleep at the airport, seeing what your credit card can do for you and the way that it can basically give you a bed to sleep in for free can be really beneficial. You know, I myself took a PCR test before my flight and I wanted to make sure, you know, I didn't have COVID. I didn't really have a reason to believe I did, but living in New York right now, obviously it's it's certainly a concern. But the whole time I was thinking, waiting for my results, I was like, you know, if I do test positive for COVID, I'm obviously not going to go on this flight, but I don't know how the airline will handle that. What do they do if you call them up and be like, you know, I have COVID. I don't want to go on this plane. In your specific situation, if you were to test positive because uh, you actually can show with a doctor's note, yes, I'm actually sick, infectious, typically not able to get like just a refund for it, but they'll let you like reschedule the ticket, no penalty whatsoever. Where I think a lot of people make a incorrect assumption is when they think, I had a ticket to fly to New York January 10th. Uh, COVID is just raging there right now. I'm immunocompromised. I don't think it would be wise to take this trip. A lot of people buy travel insurance, assuming that for a situation like this, they would be able to cancel their ticket and get their money back. And that's just not the case. A year and a half ago, late 2020, airlines made the very, I think, laudable, very applaudable step of offering automatic flexibility on everything but basic economy tickets. The way it works is if you switch to dates that are more expensive, you have to cover that fare difference. But if you switch to dates that are cheaper, you actually get the difference back in the form of a travel credit. But then last thing here is that federal law says that if the airline is the one who cancels or significantly changes your flight, you're entitled to a full cash refund. Uh, you don't have to take a voucher. You don't have to take a flight credit. Know your rights. If the airline cancels or significantly changes, you're entitled to a full cash refund. Well, that's a question that I wanted to ask you, actually, Scott, because I have seen that verbiage before, but... The word significant, in my mind, is really open for interpretation. And like, who decides that? What does that even mean? Make me king for a day. One of the very first things I'm doing, I'm changing the Department of Transportation regulations so that they actually define what the hell significantly means. But they very purposefully leave significant change to be ambiguous. And they leave it up to the airlines to decide what it is. Generally speaking, I think if it's been a two hour or more change, that is enough to get you eligible for a full cash refund. 
but you want to check with your specific airline uh, what the what the kind of threshold is. So we have talked a lot about the negatives of this clusterfuck that's going on. Um, but, you know, even what you just said, that seems a little advantageous for people who are flexible. I think we've all been in a situation where they announce at the gate, would anyone be willing to accept a voucher for XYZ? How can people who are willing and able kind of take advantage of that right now? Take advantage might be the wrong way to put it because of everything going on. But, you know, let's be real. I think that if you... I'll t- shit, I'll take advantage. If they're giving money, I'll take it. <laughs> Look, there's a few things you want to do. First, thinking about it in terms of a negotiation, in terms of leverage. You know, if the airline has just... If they just have one seat they need to get rid of, your, your leverage is not going to be very good. If it's like, shit, we're oversold by 10 seats, 15 seats, you know, it's Christmas Eve. My seat all of a sudden became very, very valuable. First, let's say the airline oversold by by five seats. Even if you're one of the first people to volunteer, you should stipulate that I want my final compensation to be the same as whatever the final compensation of the last person who gets it is. Because, you know, generally they'll have a sort of like ratcheting up almost an auction of sorts where they'll say, we're offering a $250 voucher and they'll see if they get any volunteers. We have a $300 voucher, $350. And so if you volunteer at $300 or say, I want whatever the last person gets, because that might be $600, that might be $900. And then secondly, there's a lot of like hidden menu, almost like in and out hidden menu stuff in the airline world. Yeah, can I get that ticket to Chicago animal style, please? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And here are some things that are on the secret menu. Uh, certainly hotels, meal vouchers, things like that. You can ask for miles. You certainly can ask for more compensation. You could even ask for a business class seat on your alternative flight, on the one that you're getting put into. But these are things that's worth proactively asking for. They're rarely going to offer them. Maybe even you had a connecting flight. It was going to take 24 hours to get to Paris, but instead there's a nonstop flight going from your airport to Paris. Hey, can I get put on that nonstop instead? Like maybe you'll end up with a voucher and a better flight than you were originally going to take. Is there anything else that you think people traveling by air right now, let's say in the next month or so, should know that we haven't gone over today? Things are going to be still, I think, a little bit hectic for the next month or so. Probably not the the level of cancellations we've seen uh, over the holidays, but still higher than normal. There are going to be a lot of great last-minute deals. Typically, in normal times, tend to be really expensive, but really between three factors. One, still very few business travelers. Two, January and February are the least popular months of the year to travel. And then three, almost nobody is booking last-minute flights as a result of of, uh, Omicron. If you are someone who's interested, inclined, and feel comfortable traveling in these next couple months, there are going to be a lot of great deals to be had in January, February, even kind of early March. We're in this kind of rare moment right now where the stars have aligned to make them much more prevalent. I think we talked about this the last time you were on, Scott, but subscribing to you is great for so many reasons, but it's also dangerous because (laughs) there's so many good deals where it's just like, you know, they're hard to pass up. 
Look, my, my goal in life is to make the constricting factor on your vacations time, not money. Instead of paying $1,000 for your next vacation to Europe, you only pay 400 bucks or 300 bucks. And that way, if money was the constricting factor, you can take three vacations for the price that you used to pay for one. Definitely. And, you know, in addition to always helping us find great deals on flights, I want to thank you for helping us make this situation a little less opaque. I hope that somehow the powers that be do make you king for a day so you can figure out that significant quote unquote problem. Gosh, I'm going to be king for a day. I'm going to go and change one little line in the Department of Transportation, like federal registrar or whatever, and then go ahead and resign like Cincinnati style. <laughs> yeah, your legacy, <laughs> sir. Um, no, but thank you so yeah. much, Scott. I, we really appreciate it and um, always appreciate your time. So thank you so much. <laughs> Pleasure to be with you, Will. Thank you so much. Make sure to subscribe to Scott's Cheap Flights. We have a link in our description. And we are going to take a quick break. But when we get back, we speak with Dr. Calvin Sun, an ER doctor who is running international travel excursions with his travel company, Monsoon Diaries, right now. He's a lot of great advice. Stick around. Dr. Calvin Sun is another guest who has been on the show a couple times over the past year. He's an ER doctor in New York City. He's basically been on the front lines of COVID since March 2020. But he also runs the Monsoon Diaries, a travel company that takes small groups to destinations around the world, to places like Pakistan, Antarctica, Iraq, the Ukraine. And I talked to him on New Year's Eve while I was inside a closet in my Airbnb in Florida, and he was in Times Square, working. So if you hear him fiddling around with anything during this call, he's getting ready to test people like Anderson Cooper before the big ball drops. So cut him some slack. So you're upstairs of an abandoned restaurant in Times Square prepping for COVID testing for the New Year's Eve event tonight. Yeah, the New Year's Eve ball drop is happening. And, you know, whether people agree with it or not, you know, they asked me to help out, I will heed the call. I know in a couple days, you have a trip planned with Monsoon. Uh, where are you going? Don't knock, uh, don't jinx it. I'm knocking on wood. Okay. Uh, and it's going to be hopefully Martinique and St. Lucia in an isolated boat in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of COVID negative, fully boosted uh, healthcare workers and or recoveries from Omicron that tested negative like more than two times. You know what, if the CDC says that we have to go to work after five days of catching COVID to see our patients, I think it's a little safer to instead be with a bunch of other fully boosted negative COVID recoveries or healthcare workers. Martinique has, uh, needs like a negative PCR, a negative antigen, and uh, proof of vaccination. And then for like my own trip, it's like you either, you know, self-quarantine for like two weeks or you prove to me consecutively on multiple tests that you're negative. A lot of governments still rely on a PCR. When you're using a PCR, you could have been, you could be positive still from an infection three months ago, as opposed to a rapid antigen, which we know says your status in the moment, uh, how contagious you are. Mm. Like everyone has gotten Omicron at this point, 
that everyone will not be able to get into any country for the next three months because they're going to test positive on a PCR forever for the next three months, most of them, even if they're totally recovered. So the fact that countries still rely on a PCR instead of a rapid antigen is actually a lot more conservative than you know I would expect from them. So I had a, a traveler meet me at the airport with a negative test, fully vaccinated, proof of negative PCR, and was coughing. And it was August in the middle of summer. And talked to him and pretty much had him convinced that he shouldn't come with us. And he walked away from the gate. He looked a little sick and he had a cough and I wasn't going to take any chances. That's my line. I draw a high boundary. Well, from a, from a tourism perspective, it seems from what you're saying that if you maybe had COVID two months ago, but you were planning a trip to, um, you know, a country in Europe that, say, does require a PCR, that you could still test positive, even though you are, you know, well beyond being contagious or having COVID. And you might not even known you had COVID in the first place. So, I mean, how <laughs> for, for countries that do require something like that, how do you take the risk of even booking something a few months from now? Right. Yeah, it's it's a tough cookie to be in. You just have to cross your fingers when it comes to that scenario. I mean, some European countries are allowing a letter recovery from a doctor mm. uh, in lieu of a positive PCR that could be positive up to three months if the person really needs that trip. Man, those are hard to come by these days. So you really got to have a, you know, a good primary care doctor that looks out for you. You know, this is another knock on wood question, but it's just like you have done so much. And just by following you, I know that it seems like you have not caught COVID. Nobody on your trip has done that. And that seems pr don't jinx it. Not yet. I know. I'm sorry. This is the question I have to ask, though, because it's really interesting. It's like, you know, what precautions do you take, whether it's planning or when you're actually in the moment that, you know, maybe people who aren't traveling with a doctor, who aren't physicians themselves can implement I do make decisions based on the who's the most vulnerable, whether it's your household for my patients or on a trip uh, for the people who come traveling with me. Before the pandemic, in preparation before a trip, we would try to make sure, is malaria endemic there? Is dengue fever there? Do we need anti-malarial pills? Uh, do you need your shots in order? I mean, we've been doing this way before a pandemic. You know, we've been doing these, these preparations like way before a pandemic for 10 to 11 years now. So I think when it came to COVID, I think the precautions was like, you know, you know, you've been practicing all your life and now it's game time. And you know, right now, as I said, I, I'm in this closet in this Airbnb in Florida. I'm with five friends that I know really well. We did what we could. We either got PCRs or we took at-home tests before we came and we met up and we were at this Airbnb. We're on the beach. We're pretty isolated from other people, but, you know, we have to get to the airport. We have to go through security. We have to get on a plane. I mean, you can only speak from your own personal experience, but what is the risk level right now of going to an airport, uh, getting on a train, getting on an airplane, specifically all this public transit that, you know, you have to take to get to the boat in the middle of nowhere, to get in this house with friends that you know. So there's the art of relative risk. It's what you were comfortable in your baseline relative to what the risk is right now. And despite increasing cases, I'm not freaking out. I'm concerned, but I'm not freaking out because the hospitalization rates are not following the caseload dramatic, that's dramatically rising. So relative risk to March of 2020 Things are much better now. They're more hopeful. And because of that, we act on that relative risk, not absolute risk. If you really want to act on absolute risk, then don't travel. I know you don't like to deal in hypotheticals, but, you know, for people who are doing the quote unquote right things, who are triple vaccinated, who have tested negative, who are with people they know and they trust, do you think that this should affect their travel plans upcoming in the next few months? It really depends on who they're traveling to see who they're traveling with, where they're traveling to, 
where they're traveling from, what their baseline is, what their vaccination status is, what their medical histories are, it really depends. You have to make your decision based on the most vulnerable person that you care about in your household or the person you're seeing. And if they feel they're at a threat, whatever your travel plans are, then don't do them. It's a first world problem if it's for vacations, right? But everyone does need a vacation. It's good for mental health. I agree with that. And it does seem like right now you are pretty okay with getting on an airplane and going places. I mean, now it seems like you are going to a lot of tropical destinations. Is that just because it's winter in New York? It's warm, it's hot, it's summer. Viruses don't really grow well in that kind of conditions. <laughs> Right, we're in the summer. What happened in the summer of May of 2020 before the vaccine? What happened to our rates in New York City? This is before a vaccine. This is May, June, July. Rates were nearly zero mm. for infections. That's why I choose warm places. Furthermore, there are islands, Cyprus, Cayman Islands, Sardinia, Corsica. It's really, really easy to isolate on an island than it is a mainland with borders are porous and people can come in from it anywhere. I trust the data. Yeah. Airplanes, they cycle the air 20 times over in their HEPA filters. It's actually safer than indoors anywhere. Planes suck out the air really well, especially the kind of airlines I like to go on to get to these islands. They're, they're gonna be air buses. They're gonna be higher end Boeing. They're gonna cycle the air much better so that you feel more comfortable. They're very good for infection control and they needed negative PCR before you can board on the flight in the first place. And they require fully vaccine, fully uh, proof of full vaccinations before you can even enter the country in the first place. So. I choose islands because of those reasons. Um, the in and outs are much more reliable. The data is much more reliable. And I also choose it when the data shows that the infection rates have been historically low for the last month. Dr. Calvinson, I wish you the best of luck in your upcoming trip. And I wish you the best tonight, too. You have a big job. Oh, thank you. A lot of people saw me looking away on the camera, but um, the reason why I kind of rambled at certain parts of this podcast is a lot of people are just making fun <laughs> of me in the background of my most wonderful staff that signed up at the last minute to make sure that Times Square is as safe as it can be this year. Multitasking, right? That's your that's, that's your deal. Yeah, just minimizing risk. Always. If you want to go on a trip with Dr. Sun and Monsoon Diaries, they have about one a month for the next few months. There's some really cool destinations. We have a link in our description. And while Dr. Sun and, admittedly, I feel okay to travel during the pandemic, I wanted to close out this episode by getting a take from someone who spends a lot of their professional time dedicated to the question, is it really okay to travel right now from a moral standpoint? So this might be kind of a bummer for some people, but I do think it's important to hear, even if you don't agree. Hi, my name is Kelly Hills, and I am a bioethicist. I have my own consulting company along with my partner um, and husband, and that's Rogue Bioethics. Bioethics as a whole is just the ethical study of biology. In fact, almost any part of research that you end up hearing about has probably had an ethicist look at it at some point just to make sure that the research itself doesn't violate what we would consider ethical norms nowadays. I've traveled a little bit in December. Things are really mm -hmm. difficult and complicated right now. And one of the things that just weighed on my mind and also the people I was with was the ethics of traveling right now. We're all vaccinated, right? We took a mm -hmm. test before we left. We took a test before we got on the airplane. We took it says before we met up, um, you know, 
But is it a good idea to go on a plane right now, knowing that, you know, my risks are low, I've done everything quote-unquote right, but other people are involved, you know? Right. And that's really hard because, you know, what we can't know is the risks or the risk profiles. So that is what the risks people on the plane, for example, are comfortable taking. We don't know what all of those people's risk profiles are. Likewise, you don't know what the risks or risk profiles are of the people at the airport, the people taking you to and from, all of the service people you're encountering. And that's that's where it starts getting really hard. I don't personally like making ethics ethical choices come down to a mathematical model. But that's kind of what you're looking at right now. But at the same time, what happens if you have a family member who's dying of cancer? And this is your chance to go say goodbye. What happens if you have a friend who has had a desperately awful year and you don't want to leave them alone at the holidays? These are extenuating circumstances. And in an ideal world, this is why we would have public health agencies helping guide us through these choices rather than having to make them ourselves. That's what really gives me pause about getting on an airplane or going to a restaurant because there are staff members that are, in many cases, kind of have to be there, right? And I don't want to get them sick. The people that are there probably are there out of choice. I mean, how do you reckon with that? Yeah, I think it's really difficult. And I think that that's one of, for me personally, that's one of the reasons why I don't do funsies travel right now. Yeah, I wish there was an easy solution for that. And there's not other than to say you have to look at your own choices and you have to figure out what you can live with. One of the things that I've been encouraging people to think about when they're asking themselves whether or not they should travel is, all right, is this for work? If so, then you might not have a choice if you want to keep your job. That's that's an unfortunate reality. But if this is for pleasure, I think people need to think about how are they going to feel if they get COVID or if they give it to somebody else. And if you give COVID to somebody else and that person dies, how are you going to feel about yourself for taking a vacation when... It wasn't a necessity. And some people think that's really over the top, especially since vaccinated people are at much less risk of dying now, and we are hopefully getting more of the population vaccinated every day. And that might be, but even if somebody doesn't die from COVID, they can still end up with something called long COVID, calling long haulers, and these can be lifelong disabilities. I think that people will hopefully make good decisions for themselves if those are the questions they're asking before they travel. Here's a question for you. I saw something uh, on Reddit, a noted bastion of morality, reddit.com, of course. (laughs) It was a picture that someone took on an airplane of someone, you know, in front of, did you see this? Do you know what I'm talking about? The, the, the one where they're like, shush, I have COVID yes, or whatever, exactly. we're coming home early. I actually literally just saw that about two hours ago. So, yes. <laughs> so, just just to clarify, so it's a picture mm. of somebody sitting behind another person, zoomed in on their text conversation. The text yes. conversation, it, it appeared that it was a woman, and she was saying, shh, I have COVID, I need to come home early. It was actually like the, their whole family or something. We all have COVID, we're coming home early. What is the obligation to say something? Because it, there's so much here. There's there's an invasion of 
of um, privacy. Are mm-hmm. they spreading COVID to everyone in the plane? Is there a 90-year-old woman next to this woman? Like, you don't right. know. I would be very careful about confronting anybody in that situation. I think probably the safest thing to do would be to pull aside a flight attendant. They're going to know what they need to do in that situation. And that way you don't put yourself at risk of somebody who has COVID turning around and getting in your face. I think that if you have decided to travel, if you have said, look, I've thought about moral injury and I'm I'm okay bearing that burden, and you have run through all of the check marks and the math of, you know, where are you going? What's the risk? What's the risk to the people around you? And you're you're convinced you are going to be as safe as possible. All right. I would say if you have made that decision to travel for whatever reason, then you should find and follow the most stringent public health guidelines that are out there, regardless of who issued them. That way, you know at least you are doing the maximum to keep not only yourself, but everybody that you are traveling with and who is working within the travel industry space safe. Kelly, well, thank you so much for lending your your expertise and talking to us for a little bit. I think it's, you know, like I said, it's given us a lot to think about. And I think it's, these are important things to think about. And I think they're extremely relevant right now and probably will be for some time. So thank you. I appreciate it. It was a real pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. All right, we want to thank all of our guests today. For more info on them and what they spoke about, we have a ton of links in our description. And whatever you decide to do over the next few months, stay safe and stay well. We'll be back next week with something a little more fun. See you then. This show is produced by myself and Mia Fask, edited and mixed by the otherworldly Dean White and Abby Austria. Special thanks to all of my bosses, Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, Brett Kushner, and Emily Feld. That's it for us. Put your tray tables up, leave your shoes on, and we'll see you next week. Bye.